Just a reminder, our podcast deals with crimes that are often violent and graphic in nature, so listener discretion is advised. So when in doubt, leave the kids out. Now, please let us take you back in time. Hello, old Tom Crime Gal family. Thanks for tuning in again this Thursday. It is September 16th. We're a little late getting the episode up. I apologize. My partner in crime telling, Shannon, has suffered a relapse in her recovery because she tries to do too much too soon and she needed to rest. So we wish her well and that she'll not try to do a lot, rest up so that she can be back next week and help me tell some more stories. So today, I decided to talk about Helene Prezinski. She was a college student from Hamilton, Massachusetts, and she had made her way to Denver, Colorado as part of an internship, and she left work and never made it home. She grew up in Hamilton, Massachusetts, and she was in a singing group in high school, called Harmony, and that's where she met her really good friend, Kim, her best friend, Kim, and she also fell in love with Kim's older brother, John, so she had a high school sweetheart. Well, it didn't last through graduation, but they all remained friends, so they still kept in contact, and she went off to um, Wheaton College and actually was in a member of a singing group there. She was very active in drama and theater which I can relate to, and she also had an interest in journalism, and so she wanted to um, travel and be a journalist, and she got an internship at a radio station in Denver, Colorado, so it was December of 1979. She was at church, and she announced that she was going to move and to pursue this career, And she had an aunt who lived in Colorado, so she wouldn't be away from everybody. She would have somewhere to stay. She would have relatives there, so she wouldn't be quite alone. So her family felt comfortable with her going through this. So it was January 16th, and she had been at this job for like two weeks. So not really a long enough time to get to know people, especially when you start a new job in a new place. Um, She didn't really know a lot of extra people outside of her aunt and uncle that she was staying with. But she gets off. She leaves the radio station, you know, around 6 p.m. And she catches a bus. And she gets off. And it's about a six-block walk from the bus to her aunt's house. Well, she gets off the bus. And she never made it home. So it was around 10 o'clock that night that they called the police in and decided to do a missing persons report because she should have been home. They went out driving. They took what the walk she would have walked. They tried to retrace her steps. They couldn't find her. But she was found the next morning. She was found a couple of miles away from the bus stop uh, in a snowy field, unfortunately, uh, murdered, it seemed. So it looked like she was... um, sexually assaulted, she had some clothes missing, she was bound, and she was stabbed to death. So she was stabbed about nine times. 
but it would be 40 long years before anyone got to the bottom of what actually happened to Helene. So they start retracing her steps. Helene was on the bus. She was last seen getting off the bus, according to the driver and witnesses that were on the bus. And then the field was nine, like a couple miles away. So they couldn't figure out what happened between the bus stop and this field in her aunt's house. You know, they had no technology to rely on. She had no defensive wounds at all, so it did not look like she had fought. So they thought at first maybe she knew her attacker, but she had only been in town for two weeks, and she didn't really know a lot of people. So there really wasn't anything to go on as far as working from the victim out. They did find an eyewitness that said a man was kind of hanging around in the area that her body was found, like leaning against a car. But she couldn't really give a detailed description other than he was a young man, maybe 5'9", 5'10", medium build. But they needed to find what this person looked like. So they put the witness under hypnosis to describe the man that she saw to a sketch artist. So while she was under hypnosis, she gave the description of what this man looked like and the sketch artist was drawing it out. So at the end, they ended up with a basic generic sketch of a guy with a mustache and some eyes and they determined that that was just all they had. So they put that out there and months went by, you know, no one came forward, nothing was happening. The sketch didn't you know, click in somebody's head that they saw this person. So Helene's friend Kim, you know, she decided that it's now her life's mission to keep going, keep this case alive, find out the truth of what happened to her friend, and she was just not going to let it go. And so she just kept calling, again, calling every week, asking for the updates, you know, making it known that no one was going to stop until they find out what happened to Helene. So they were looking at every possibility. So you have in the 70s and the 80s, this explosion of, you know, active serial killers, the Ted Bundys, the the Lucas and Tools, the, the people that were just really scary and America was fascinated with. So her friend Kim was, you know, where was Ted Bundy at the time? Because he had been, you know, caught, you know, who could a serial killer have done this? So they looked at everybody. And at the time, there were at least 35 active serial killers, and especially out west. And that's terrifying. I mean, there's probably more active right now. They just operate a different way, but that's just scary. But Henry, Henry Lee Lucas and another person by the last name Tool said they were two guys that ended up getting caught. They were transients that went around the country, and they boasted about how they have killed over 200 women and they have these elaborate stories and they ended up confessing to the crime of killing Helene. But they were brought in and they were interrogated and they were questioned. And one of the guy, the Lucas was like, yeah, you know, we did it. This is what happened. And, you know, I shot her and I shot her in the head. And, you know, we know that didn't happen. She wasn't shot. So it's several times that these criminals, often confess to stuff they didn't do for um, notoriety, fame, just the, you know, they want to up their body count because they think that makes them look cool in their sick minds. 
and they want to be known for doing extra stuff that they didn't do. But it was determined that they were, you know, not in Colorado at the time. They were somewhere else and that they did not commit this one. So they were marked off the list. So it's just been a long time. Case goes cold. They have no idea what happened. But in 1998, more hope emerged because that is when people started doing DNA testing. And as it turns out, the detectives realized that there was DNA samples from Helene's case that they had not tested. So this was a huge thing. So they decided to test the samples that they have from the original evidence. So they actually had enough DNA to pull up a profile, pull up a male profile. So they had a suspect's information. So they ran the suspect's DNA and put it through CODIS, which we know is the national database for offenders and such. But it's early. This is only 1998. So there's not a match to compare it to. So then stuff goes cold again for a while. But in 2004, um, around Helene's birthday, for her birthday, they decided to do a reunion of the singing group Harmony. And so Kim puts this thing together, and then they decide to go out to Colorado and just gather a bunch of people and make the walk that she would have walked home from the bus stop to her aunt's house. And this was kind of a way to maybe smoke out the killer, like get the public's, you know, interest back into it. Let people know that, you know, it's not, they're not taking no for an answer that they want to find who did this and Helene's memory is still alive and it works. So they get all these news interviews and they make the press and they put the website together and they were just hoping that, you know, somewhere in a dark room somewhere, someone clicks on that website and they can get an IP address from a, a cryptic person that left a comment or, or something like that. Or they would get the killer kind of afraid and make him make mistakes that people are still looking for him, after, you know, so many years later. So it's still cold. But the public is a little bit more interested. She's starting to gain a little bit more coverage. But in 2019, you know, this is 40 years later, the case gets a new detective, Sheenan Jensen. And we know how a lot of times these cases, when you get someone new on it, they have a different perspective. They work a little bit different. They're try different tactics, and and sometimes they yield results. Well, she decided that she was going to catch whoever did this. And so she actually entered the suspect's DNA into GEDmatch, which is like if you do, it's a way to track genealogy and family trees and people who do like Ancestry.com and 23andMe if you've ever gotten your DNA tested for either health reasons or you want to look at your family tree, there is an option once you pull up your profile that you can personally um, submit your findings, your DNA to GEDmatch. And that um, is done voluntarily. You don't have to do it. If you get a kit and you get your stuff tested, they don't do it for you. You have to voluntarily submit your profile. But it helps law enforcement find missing persons. 
find criminals, find family members of criminals. It's just a tool that they use. Um, it was really done it's recently, and not a lot of agencies utilize this, but it's how the Golden State Killer was found. It's just a way to just determine a lot of Jane Doe's and John Doe's have gotten their names through GEDmatch. They've been able to locate who these people are. It's just a really good tool. So Jensen runs this DNA profile, and anything that pops up is considered a lead, but she has to go through, you're looking at thousands of names because it pulls up, you know, distant two, three, four generations, cousins, and, you know, aunts, anybody who has DNA that's even remotely similar, she has to call on the phone and look up, you know, births and death certificates and newspapers. It's still like old school police work, but just with the help of the computer, just a little bit. So it takes her a while to go through all these leads, but... You know, she builds, goes through these thousands of names, but she builds hundreds of family trees trying to figure out where these branches intersect to this suspect's DNA. But in the fall of 2019, she tracked down someone whose DNA was so close that they're possibly like a first cousin. And so she, she contacts them, you know, thinking this, this is great, this is it. But that person wasn't really helpful because they weren't close to their family they didn't know a lot about, you know, the extended of their family. They couldn't build a tree based on what they knew. All she told her was that, you know, there's a pair of brothers in my family. They're kind of weird. They're strange. No one really talks to them. Um, you know, check, check them out. And so she does. She looks up these brothers. And one of the brothers, his name was Curtis Allen White. He had a rap sheet. And his rap sheet included rape in the early 70s and 80s that he served time for, that he was caught in Florida. But when he was paroled, he was paroled right in Douglas County, Colorado, where he was 21 at the time, and so was Helene. So this is actually looking really promising. So Jensen is excited, and she goes to tell her boss, like, I figured it out. I know who did it. Now, he knows the case well and how all the leads were, were called. This is a 40-year-old case. And he's like, no, no, you don't. Like, you can't just come into this case, figure it out in, like, two weeks, and you know who did it. I'm not sure if it was two weeks, but compared to 40 years, it seemed rather fast. And so he's like, no, no. And she sits down and she explains, like, no, this is DNA genealogy, and this is how I got to this point, and I really think that this person is who we need to look at. So he convinces her, like, okay, you might be onto something. Let's go see the sheriff so we can figure out what to do. <laughs> so then, you know, they have to tell all the story again to the sheriff because he was the one who had worked the case. He had worked his way up, and now he was sheriff. So he was a little bit skeptical, too. Like, he spent 40 years trying to figure out who did this. There's no way you can just take some DNA and look at the computer and figure this out. But he was convinced, so they decided that they needed to find this Curtis. So they decided to track him down. Now they found Curtis in Florida, but he had moved to Florida and he began a new life as James Curtis Clanton. So he had adopted a new name. He, you know, had a career. He had gotten married. He had a family 
and it didn't seem like James was, you know, acting like he was a criminal or that he could have done this. He was somebody totally different. But so they started putting him on surveillance. He was living in a trailer on someone's land, and he had this big white van that had a shark on the side. So they located him and found out what he was driving, where he was living. So then they watched him, and he often visited a local bar. Well, they had a chat with the bar owner, and so he would come in and drink his beer, chit-chat, or do whatever he was doing, and then the bartender, before giving him another, would slip his cup in a bag, and then he would hand it to the owner, who would slip it out the back door and into police custody. So they gathered three beer mugs from this particular visit that he had at the bar. The mugs were sent back to Colorado to be tested. So the lab there, you know, they had been working on this case since 1980. So everyone was on pins and needles, just waiting for this test to come through. So finally, Jensen gets a phone call. Only one of the three beer mugs had enough DNA to be tested and to build a profile from. But that DNA also happened to be an exact match from the DNA that was pulled from the semen on Helene's coat that January night in 1980. All right, so we are back, and we know that one of those beer mugs that they captured from the man James at the bar down in Florida was an exact match for the crime scene DNA that had been found. So Jensen was right. She found Helene's killer. But there's a huge problem. See, the statute of limitations for rape had long been expired. This you're looking at over 40 years. So James could easily admit to the rape all day long that he did it and there was nothing that could be done about it. There was no consequences that he would face. You know, he could just deny the murder. And the only thing that put him there was his DNA from his semen. So obviously, you know, sexually assault did happen. Um, so they had to pin him. They had to figure out how to get him to confess to the murder. So what they did was they approached James and they told him flat out that, you know, his social security number had been um, in a, compromised in a scam. And they asked him if he would voluntarily come down to the station to have a chat and see if they could figure out what had happened and, and why he was getting ready to be caught up in this identity theft thing. And he agreed. So he thought he was going there to talk about his social security number and like his recent purchases and help with this identity theft case. And so he was fully cooperative, and they bring him in. So now they have him on tape, so it's recorded, and they're having this conversation. And, you know, they ask him, you know, at any point, did you live somewhere else? He says he lived in Colorado. They ask him what time frame. He says 7980. So he had, you know, puts himself in that area at that time. And so then, you know, detectives ask him if he, you know, knew a young girl by the name of Helene and, he says no, and then immediately they, you know, slide the photo over how they do. And he's like, nope, I don't know her, and immediately asks for a lawyer. 
which, I mean, makes you look guilty. Lawyers are good things to have, and I would probably do the same, but being completely cooperative to immediately, nope, need a lawyer, not saying another word, usually means you had something to do with it. And so they placed him under arrest because they did have his DNA for the murder of Helene Brzezinski. And so he gets extradited back to Colorado. Well, on the way back to Colorado, James decided to get a little chatty with Lieutenant Barilla, who was driving him to the airport. So he grabs his phone, uh, Lieutenant Barilla, and he hits record. And so he's chit-chatting to James, and he said that he knew it was going to come back to get him. And he's like, what was going to come back? And he said, you know, the girl is like, I killed that girl that they're accusing me of. And he's like, what, come again? Because <laughs> that's what they were looking for was a confession. And so he has them on tape saying what happened. And then he goes in to describe it. So after Helene got off the bus, he kidnapped her with a knife, said he had a knife. And the lieutenant asked, you know, did what did she say? And he, she just said, I'll go. She was very cooperative. She was just going to go along with what he had you know, thinking he was going to let her go. And he explained that, you know, he raped and he stabbed her to death. And he actually explained he intended to become a serial killer. Uh, he wanted to have, you know, numbers and body counts and be like those guys, those head bunnies and such. But something about Helene haunted him about how she was cooperative. She was really nice. And something in him just, he said he gained a conscience and he couldn't do it again, so he was a serial killer of one. Um, but he didn't gain quite enough conscience to turn himself in or turn his life around, other than he moved away, changed his name, and just acted like it never happened. But Helene's family and friends, they spoke out at his sentencing remotely over Zoom, because, you know, how things are in the world now. And James was sentenced to life in prison for the rest of his natural life, so he's not getting out. So, finally, after 40 years, the case was solved, and the entire team of investigators and the family, they had this big reunion. They could just all breathe a little bit better, and now Helene's parents had passed away, so they didn't never find out the truth of what happened or who did it. But for the people that were left, you know, they do have some closure, and it was just the persistence of her friend Kim who didn't give up who kept calling constantly asking detectives what is going on and detective Jensen's you know cold case approach and fresh eyes and looking at it through a different perspective and the use of DNA genealogy so that's something that is the only reason why this case was solved so many years later because it was just a random person it wasn't um, someone they could place back to through the victim and through motive and anything like that. It was just a random sick person who decided to do this something so violent, but at least he got caught and is now serving his time. So I know a lot of people do those ancestry.coms, the 23andMe, the there's several of them out there. There's even ones for your dog that you can DNA your dog and find out their, their breed history, their health problems and stuff like that. So if that's something that you have done or are doing or planning on doing and you kind of want to help the crime community and maybe solve some cold cases of missing persons or murders and such, you can opt to enter your information into GEDmatch. So that is a good way to help law enforcement and the FBI and all these 
agencies who are trying to get these cold cases solved because now we do have the technology to track down people like James who have done something 40 years ago and thought they got away with it. So I encourage you to enter your information into GenMatch. And I want to thank you so much for listening on this Thursday. I know I tend to talk a little fast when it's just me because I have no one to bounce ideas off or no one to comment or no one to to kind of tell me to slow down or pause. So, Shannon, you're missed. Um, but thank you so much if you've hung on this long. So n- this episode actually came inspiration from a dateline. And I will um, link that in my sources. And you know you can always join our Facebook group at Old Time Crime Gals on Facebook. Send us messages. We love hearing new case ideas. If there's one you want us to cover that we haven't covered yet. I know there's some big ones that I plan to do in the future. But I have to have some dedicated time to do more research. To get in-depth to make sure that everything is accurate. There is some stuff unfolding right now. Um, in our area that's going to be a future dateline. I know they're investigating, and it's a really twisted tale of the family in South Carolina. So I kind of want to do that profile. I know we do older ones, but this story is just really fascinating. So I'm always keeping up with what's going on now versus looking at older cases. So if you have any suggestions, please send them our way. They are greatly appreciated because sometimes there's just so much, and I have a hard time pinning down what I want to talk about or what I want Shannon to talk about. Because, you know, she just reads from the papers. But we love her. And just remember, we'll see you next week. And if you do the crime, it will catch you you up in time. And we'll talk about it. She's so much better at that than me. Y'all have a great day.